Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. If you have questions about our church or following Jesus, feel free to reach out to us at info at theplantchurch.org. Now, here's today's message. Here's what we're going to do today. Every summer, I spend weeks praying through the calendar. Where are we going? What are we doing? And as we pray through that, I always leave space for the Holy Spirit to make a shift. Because for some reason, as much as the Holy Spirit is leading me, it's not like I'm in my office and let's like, beam me up, Scotty. Holy Spirit is talking, talking, talking. No, I'm wrestling through. I'm wrestling through with, with my with intellect, emotions, and the Holy Spirit's working through things. And every year the Holy Spirit says, leave room for me to change things up. As I lead you, things will shift. Be open for me to shift what's next. And I'll be honest with you, this summer I read this amazing book. It's called The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. He is not a Christian author. I believe in being well-read and well-rounded. And as a minister, I need to know what's going on in society. I need to know what's going on with humanity. I need to know how to understand dealing with people's emotions and intellect as the Holy Spirit is working deeply in people's lives. And this one author wrote this book, and I just kind of picked it up because Sue picked up another one of his books, and she said, I heard this is really good. I said, let me grab a different one. I'll grab a different one. And I read it, and all I heard was the Holy Spirit screaming, Joseph, get ready to preach on Joseph. I'm like, okay, God, but I already have my sermon series planned, so we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later, right? Right? <laughs> And October came around, and I started seeing what's going on in culture. And I started hearing what's going on in each of your lives. And I said, read the book again. And then read the book again. And as I read this book, I realized that oftentimes as ministers, we give the new year a false hope. It's almost like we forget about Everything that happened the year before and just somehow believe that at 12.01, on January 1, everything is supposed to go better. How many of you felt this way this year? Come on, who's lying, right? Who's lying? I see it in your eyes, right? And and, and so that, I, I really was like, I feel like at times, and forgive me for when I have, In your circumstance, have put false expectations on the circumstance you are going through right now. Do you forgive me? Thank you for those few that said yes. Everybody else, pray about it. (laughs) But, But it's this idea. It's this idea that in our adversity, God is always up to his best work. I see that throughout my life. In my adversity, in my challenges, in my questioning, in my wrestling, God was always and is always up to his best work. Why? Because it's in our challenges that the work of sanctification is happening in our lives, and God is doing a deep deep work in us. And so, 
For the next five weeks, including today, we are going to talk about how obstacles are God's opportunities to do his best and most defining work in each of our lives. And I want to be fair to all of us. For some of you, your obstacles are strongholds that you have wrestled with since being a child. I'm going there. For some of you, your obstacles are things that are being thrown at you in the presence. Work, home, something with an illness, whatever it may be. Finances. And some of you, if I'm going to be really, really fair to everybody in this room, are obstacles that you have caused and put on yourself. And I believe Jesus wants you to overcome every single obstacle that is thrown at you. Amen? You want to know why I preach like this? Because I love you. I love you. And I want you to experience all that God has in store. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to just ask you, that your Holy Spirit would just supernaturally fill this room. I know this is a, a bizarre image, but I ask you that this would be an image that the Holy Spirit is just embracing and hugging us, giving us the opportunity that we would just stop and slow down and begin to look at this year in a way that we've never been given permission to look at a new year before. Holy Spirit, I pray that healing would come this year. Healing in a way that something would click this morning that we never even thought need to be healed. And all God's people said, Amen. We're going to jump into Genesis 37. We're actually looking at this, the whole chapter today. I'll probably paraphrase some of it because there's a lot there and other parts I will read. But I want you to, over the next five weeks, if people say, I don't know where to begin in the Bible, begin with Genesis 37. Take time. Read this story over and over and over and over. You see, when I was in college and I became a follower of Jesus, I just started reading certain things over and over and over and over again because I knew that God was beginning to speak to me in one area of Scripture. So Genesis 37. Let's read it. So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan. Now, oftentimes when you think about Canaan, it's really bad people, really bad people, where his father had lived as a foreigner. This is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. Remember his age. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. Imagine being named that. What's up, Zilpah? Want to go on a date? Let's go to the movies. <laughs> That's messed up. Sorry. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. So we got a narc in the family. Anyone remember the narc in the family? Right? Don't point to the narc. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of 
his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. That's a pretty powerful first four verses of Scripture. So let's do this. Let's talk about family origin. Let's talk about what we come from. Let's talk about how our upbringing, who we are, plays a major role to who we are today. Some people are like, I'm out. He's one of those. I'm one of those. Why does my voice keep changing today? I don't know. But talk about family origin. Joseph. It says he was 17 years old. Do we have any 17-year-olds in here? And you probably don't want to raise your hand, right? Right? Because you're 17. You don't have to, right? But if you want to, you can. So he was 17. Think about 17. 17, what happens? You get your driver's license. Do I get an amen? Yes. Now, here's the funny thing is, this is like the first generation that some of the teenagers wait until they turn 17 to get their permits and their driver's license. I remember being 16. Well, I shouldn't say that I started driving when I was 12 because then I would get in trouble. But I remember being 16 and just being so ready to drive. And I remember waiting for my, my 17th birthday to want to drive. And it's funny that right now, like, there's a lot of teenagers. Remember, I'm a parent. I've been a parent of four teenagers that sometimes it's, they're willing to wait. Why do they need to drive when their friends have a car? Why do they need to drive when they have Uber or Lyft? Like, like right, right? It's, it's awesome. You don't need to drive and be a teenager right now. But there's something about 17. Most 17 years old are a junior in high school. That means the one question they are all being asked, right, Caleb? Where are you going to college next? Next, What's your next steps? Are you going to college? Are you not going to college? And it's really sad because in Bergen County, the, the, the question is, so where are you going to college? Not what's next. But let me tell you, not everyone's meant to go to college. Okay? Not everyone's designed to go to college. And forcing your kid to go to college at the wrong time could be a very detrimental thing. I'm telling you that because that was my situation. I wasn't emotionally ready for it. And intellectually, I had to get some things cleaned up. But 17, you get your driver's license. There's that what's next. You have new freedoms. And it's a freedom of knowing that you're underneath your, your parents' care, but at the same time, you're like, hey, I should get more liberties. If you're 17, turn to your parent and say, hey, I should get more liberties right? You're allowed to say that. Your pastor gave you permission. So, so in this, you have a 17-year-old Joseph. And, and I love how it picks up right there. But tragedy struck twice in Joseph's life. He lost his mother and he lost his grandparents. Now, for any of you who know a teenager who lost a parent or a grandparent, it is, that is real trauma. That's real trauma. Because in some ways, especially for the mom, or that really special pup-up, or grandpa, or pops, or whatever you call your grandparent, that you know 
that even though you don't want to talk to them all the time, there are moments you need them. And he lost both. My heart breaks for my wife. She lost her father when she was a baby. And then at a significant time in her life, she lost a grandparent too. And she still feels that pain. She reflects on that pain. She's working through that pain. Now, let's add some more to this. I'm 51, and anyone who is really about 52 and younger, there's one thing that we understand better than the older generations. Blended families, right? Think about when the Brady Bunch came out. Now, the Brady Bunch came out because of a loss, not a divorce. There are many of you in your 40s, in your 30s, in your 20s, and in your teens that are part of a blended family. Think about how detailed scripture is. Think about how powerful God is, is that what scripture is telling us, God knows, and God sees everything. And there's significance. And let's also add to this family of origin that that oftentimes there's a favorite child. I'm not going to ask if you were a favorite child, right? In my family with seven boys, we always bust on two brothers and say, you're the favorite one. They're like, I'm not the favorite one. You're the, you're the favorite one. I'm like, I'm like, I'm always like the second or third least. And they're just like, no, you're not. No, you're not. I'm like, but it's true. Little twitch. <laughs> but, but there's this truth that, that as parents, there are seasons in our lives that we are really close to certain children. And you don't mean to play favoritism, but there are seasons when parents can give more attention to one child than another. Do I think Jacob was doing this deliberately? No. He lost his wife. It was the wife, and he had many, many wives. Shame on him. That was the first problem. That it says in Scripture he loved the most. He also had Joseph in his old age, and so he kind of was cherishing parenting differently. You see, when you have all your children by the age of 30, it's just crazy. You're just trying to survive. But when you're older and you have kids, you kind of savor it a little bit more. And so there was favoritism. And he was the favorite, and he was not even the oldest. He wasn't even the second or third or fourth or fifth oldest. He was down on the chain. And because of that, his siblings did not like him. There was family conflict. Remember, Jacob was a God-fearer. He loved God. He knew God. And Jacob was still a broken man. Do I get an amen? Seriously, he still was a broken man, even though he was a God-fearer. Amen? And what does that show? That even when we are truly in love with Jesus, there are still broken parts of our lives. And God needs to heal it. And so you have favoritism. You have a blended family. You have trauma. And all of a sudden, Joseph is just kind of thrown on the stage for us to take a look at his life. I was thinking about this. I'm just going to read what I wrote just because I I preached last service. Too often we don't take an inventory of our family origin. Too often we do not take an inventory of our family origin. When we do, there are already fixed emotional strongholds that can play a major factor in how we view God 
self and circumstances. I didn't say this in the first service, but I really felt something in, in, my, in my nudge. I call it the Holy Spirit. All my kids, when they hit high school, I offered to give them five sessions of counseling, not for me, but to send them to a counselor. Because I know when they turn 17, 18 years old that there are, there's trauma in their life, whether put on purposely or not, that they need to work through. Family origin. And I want to encourage you that if you see your kids really struggling, do not fear sending your child to speak to someone. I remember for one of them, it was defining. And when he got to college, he started going to life coaching. You see, that's good parenting. Realizing that, have I been part of the mess? And how do I bring healing into their life? So let me ask you, how many of you have been given permission to look at your family origin? How many of you really believe that it's, the problem is, is oftentimes we become a believer and all of a sudden we just kind of like say like, God starts now. No, God started way back then. God started in the womb. God started pre-womb for you because he loves you and he's called you by name. And I want to encourage you, don't fear what you've come from. But realize this, that God may be up to his best through your family origin. Amen? Amen. Let's keep going. One night, Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him even more. See, Joseph is not helping his case. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain, and suddenly my bundle stood up. And your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before me. His brothers responded. Now, this is in the Hebrew. Knucklehead. <laughs> so you think you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. It's pretty powerful. It's so detailed. Soon Joseph had another dream. And again, he told his brothers about it. Listen, I've had another dream, he said. The sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed low before me. And this time, he told the dream to his father as well as to his brothers. But his father scolded him, knucklehead, in the Hebrew. What kind of dream is that? He asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, and if you have your Bible or a tablet, I want you to underline this. His father wondered what the dreams meant. How many of you are dreamers? How many of you are dreamers? How many of you dream at night? Anyone dream at night? Okay, how many of you remember your dreams at night, right? You have dreamers, and then you have those who remember their dreams at night. I'm one of those weird guys. I'm like a dream ninja. So what I can do is if I wake up and I start flinching in the middle of the night, and I'm just kind of kicking and flaring, and Sue wakes me up, she's like, stop, you're hurting me. What's going on in your sleep? I'm like, nothing, everything's good. And I'm like, let me go back to bed, because I want to go back to bed to jump into my dreams to finish them up. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But the reality is, is that we dream for different reasons. We dream for three reasons. Okay, let's be fair. 
We dream or have dreams where we are at emotionally at the time. Things that are really positive or things that are very negative that are going on in our life. And so our emotions trigger or play a role in our dreams. Okay? So think about that. Whenever I have a big dream that I remember, I say, okay, what's going on emotionally in my life? Good, bad, what's happening? Two, your diet determines your dreams. That's why we always say, wow, I had some weird dreams. It must have been that Tito's burritos I had last night, right? <laughs> that, that thing that's just kind of lunged in right here. And it kind of messes with your sleep. It's true. It's true. But then third, it's God. Does God speak in our dreams? And I have to say this. God does speak in our dreams. And there have been many times that God has spoken to me about myself or others that, that is just so on target that I wake up and I'm almost terrified because I know how right it is. And I remember one time I had a dream and I asked God, I said, was that you? Was that the devil or my flesh? That was the question I asked. Was it you, the devil, or my flesh? And this is what the Holy Spirit said. He said, he goes, it was me. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? And so Joseph had dreams. The problem is, is that our dreams, the way that we handle them, become other people's threats. Is that fair? Our dreams become other people's threats. We all want each other to be successful, but do we all really want each other to thrive? Seriously. And so the way that we handle our dreams really does play a role to how people will respond. And I believe that when you look at the life of Joseph, this is where he went wrong. He talked too much. His parents gave him an unhealthy ego. Did you hear me? I'm, I'm being dead serious. We have to be careful. Back in the day, we talked about tearing down our kids. Now we have to build them up. But there is a generation that in some ways we have given our children too much ego, that they're unable to hear us. And that's hard. That's hard. Because what we do is that we overcompensate for what we did not have given to us. Do I get an amen for that? And so we overcompensate. And for some reason, I can honestly say when I read this passage that, J that Jacob gave Joseph an unhealthy ego. I mean, think about it. Christmas morning, even though they didn't have Christmas, we'll pretend they had Christmas. Jacob comes out. Hey, guys, I got one last gift. And the oldest brother's like, finally, I'm getting the jacket. Finally, I'm getting the ring. Finally, I'm getting that lot of land. And dad comes in, and he walks by brother number one, two, three, four, five. And he stops to Joseph and says, and this is for you. And so for Joseph to share his dreams, he's like, what? What did I do wrong? I told you I'd be better than you. That's what dad's been saying all along, right? And he has two dreams. First dream, the bundles. He's standing, the one bundle, and all the other bundles are worshiping. And he's like, I'm the one standing. You're the ones bowing. And it says that his brothers hated him more. 
hated him more. And if you look at this passage, there are multiple times that his brothers hated him more. That's sad. That's sad. And then he had another dream. And in that dream, he had a dream that there was the sun and the moon and the 11 stars that all bowed bowed down to him. You see, he was that 12th star. He was that 12th star. And, And everyone bowed down to him, and he told his father, and his father's like, dude, you've crossed the line. You're saying your mother and I will bow down? Do you know who my father is? My father was Isaac. Do you know who my grandfather is? My grandfather's Abraham. And you're saying, I'm going to bow down to you? And yet it says that his father wondered what the dream meant. The biggest mistake that Joseph had made not to begin to understand that God was speaking to him in his dreams, but allowing his ego and his immaturity, do you hear what I'm saying? His ego and his immaturity to get in the way of meeting other people right where they were at. And that's the world we live in. It's not the younger generation. It's all of us. It's all of us. We live in a threatening environment in which we are so terrified to fail that we will share our dreams louder than anybody else to make sure that people know where they are in their pecking order. Think about that. Our dreams become other people's threats. But I think I need to challenge us Have you ever questioned what God's up to in your dreams? Yes. What's going on with me emotionally? Yes. Am I having a good, healthy diet? Or yes. Is God up to something? And I've learned through my stages of maturity is that when God speaks to me in a dream, I put it on the shelf for a couple days. And I wait. And then I proceed forward. And I ask the question, is this something that God has given me as a treasure for my heart? Or is it something that God wants me to share with someone else? And when I handle my dreams properly, I know that not only the heavens rejoice, but people respond in a positive way. And so you look at this story and there's so much to it. Our family origin how we're wired as human beings, the natural conflicts that happen no matter what. Even the healthiest marriages go through frustrating times. Do I get an amen? Right? Because those are the things that make us who we are. So let's continue. Let me paraphrase the next 10 verses, verses 18 through 28. Now remember, Joseph had a position. His position, even though he wasn't the oldest, but was treated like the oldest, given the jacket, and also he was given the job of overseeing his siblings, he went out to the fields to check on his brothers. And it says throughout this chapter that whenever his brothers were not doing what the father expected, 
He would tell on them. How many of us love a tattletale? How many of us were that tattletale? Remember that. And so the brothers were out in the field, and they were working, and they were doing what they were supposed to. And they probably were on a break, and they're probably like, oh, here comes Joseph. Let's fake like we're working really hard, because we know what Joseph's going to do. He's going to tell on us, and we're going to get in trouble. And the oldest brother probably said, "Uh uh-uh, not today. I'm done. I'm done. This is my position. He says, when Joseph comes towards us, this is what we're going to do. We're going to kill him. Not beat him up. We're going to kill him. We're going to take his jacket. We're going to scheme a plan. We're going to slaughter an animal. We're going to splash blood all of it. We're going to bring it to our father and say that Joseph was mauled by an animal. And all the brothers are like, good idea. I'm glad you had it and not me because I was thinking it, right? And so they have this plan. And then there's this one brother, it says in the passage, Reuben, who said, no, 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 no. We're not killing anybody. We're not killing Joseph. Because Reuben knew his father's heart. Reuben knew what this was going to do to Jacob. Reuben knew that this was going to actually cause more fractures and frustrations in the family than that were already present. So Reuben's like, let's have a different plan. Let's just beat him up. Okay, that's really helpful, right? <laughs> let's just beat him up. Let's give him a good whooping. Like, okay, well, we'll beat him up. But then we're going to throw him into a cistern. We're going to throw him into a ditch. We're going to throw him into a well. And what's interesting is that when you study the word cistern in Hebrew, it actually means dungeon. Isn't that interesting? We're going to throw him into a dungeon to be left for dead. That way we're not, a, we're, not we're innocent. But I want you to think about that. Isn't it funny that oftentimes when things happen to our, in our lives, we feel like we are, in, we are imprisoned? Haven't we used that terminology? We've been imprisoned? For him, they would have said, I feel like I've been thrown in a dungeon. But watch this. They see a caravan, the Ishmaelites. Most people don't realize this, but the Ishmaelites were dif- distant cousins, right? Hagar's son was named what? Ishmaelites, right? And so these were distant cousins that were headed towards Egypt. He said, you know what? We're not going to kill him. He's in the dungeon, but we're going to sell him. So they pull him out of the dungeon, and they go to the Ishmaelites, hey, do you want a slave? And they sell their brother Joseph into slavery. And for some reason, I don't, I don't know if it was when I was like a little kid, like remember those felt Bible, the Sunday school stuff that would stick on the things? I always remember that felt one where there was like the, the guys just standing still. And then you had this one where you would see like Joseph's face plastered in the caravan in another cage. And all I see is like the brothers like high-fiving, yes. 
And Reuben thinking like, we totally make a mistake. And he's just kind of wandering around. And all I see is Joseph going into the distance with his hands on the cave, just backing away from his siblings. And his siblings thought, we'll never see him again. He was thrown into a ditch. You see, here's the problem with the human heart. It's wicked. Look at what scripture says. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things. Is the most what? Deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? His siblings' anger not only became anger, but Jesus called it raka. If you even say that you hate someone, you have murdered them in your heart. How many of us have ever had a bad thought of another human being? Right? Some of you haven't. Praise God. Bless you. My child. You're better than everybody else. God bless you. Right. No, but think about this. Like, our hearts go to really bad, dangerous places. Right? When we are in conflict, when we are really angry, when we don't deal with our stuff, when we don't recognize our family origin, we go to a dark place What Scripture says that our hearts are wicked and deceitful above all things. Think about that. You see, in Scripture, we are told we are allowed to get angry. You have permission to be angry. But in your anger, Paul says, in your anger, don't sin. Stop throwing people into your emotional dungeons. Stop it. We all do it. You see, when we forgive people, we unlock the dungeons of our hearts and we release the power that other people have over us. It's okay to get angry. The question is, how do you handle your anger? It's true. Others cause harm. Others dash your dreams, causing you to exit community, to go into a real deep place of isolation. I mean, Genesis 37 is a very powerful chapter. We all have hurt. We all have trauma. We all have shame. We all have regrets. Even Joseph, as he's going backwards, he's probably like, I shouldn't have shared the dreams. I shouldn't have wore the jacket every single day of my life. Think about that, right? Regrets. You're not alone. What I loved about the book this summer, The Obstacle is the Way, is that every little section shared about someone else's trauma, someone's adversity, and how they handled their adversity. And I thought about this book, I'm like, wow, you know, oftentimes you don't really look at people's full life. And why did he use these people? 
Because these people allowed their adversity to be their advantage. Helen Keller. Amelia Earhart. Abraham Lincoln. Reuben Carter. Thrown into jail. Innocent. And all these individuals were written about because in their obstacles and adversities. They allowed them to be the stepping stone to experience all that God had for them. We are not alone. We live in a broken world. We are broken human beings. Turn to the person next to you and say, I love you. You're broken. Turn to the other person next to you. I may not know you. I'm supposed to love you. I'm broken, right? And you're broken. But, but it's true, right? Like, like, we have to be fair to ourselves. We live in a broken world, and we are all broken. Is it possible that every single place of adversity and obstacle and trial that comes in our path, God is going to use to shape us and mold us and build us into the human beings he called us to be. I truly believe that in my mother's womb, God had a plan. And I believe in every woman's womb, God has a plan. The question is, am I going to embrace that what you meant for harm, what the enemy meant for harm, what others meant for harm, God is going to use those things to shape me and mold me and make me into the man that I will be one day when I stand before him. Let me wrap it up with this. Four things you must realize to allow your obstacles to be God's opportunities. How do you allow your obstacles to be God's opportunities? Why are we studying Joseph? Because Joseph allowed his obstacles to be God's opportunities, and God won. First, God has designed you perfectly and purposely. David said, for I know you. He said that God said, for I knew you in your mother's womb. David said, you created me fearfully and wonderfully made. We have to start looking in the mirror and say, like, God made that. Not, ooh, God made that. <laughs> right? But doing it in a healthy way, like, like understanding. Like, God did not mess up with you. Yes, you were, broke, you, were, you were born into a broken, sinful world, but God has not messed up. God is in the redeeming business. God is in the healing business. God is in the rebirthing business. But your family origin, God said, this is going to be the best place for you to experience all of me. And some of us have come up in some really traumatic circumstances. Two, obstacles shape our character, strengthen our drive, and give clarity to God's calling. 
This is really the passage for week one, James 1, 2 through 4. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Not that they bring joy, but it's an opportunity for you to find joy. For you know that when your, your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. What a great place. I don't need cars to make me happy. I don't need homes to make me happy. I don't need success to make me happy. The success that God is doing in me, that is the contentment of who I am as a child of God. That's what God wants you to come to. All of your trials are an ability for God's best sanctifying work to be completed in your life. That's all trials are. It's part of your sanctification. Third, identity. Because of Christ, you will be victorious. Amen? Because of Christ, you will be victorious. In Jesus, I am an eternal optimist. Amen? You could bring the most hellish situation to me, and I'll say, God wins. I don't care what it is, because God has won in my life. That's why. Every time the enemy has thrown something at me, and every time I allow Jesus to be victorious, it just shows that God is up to all good. What others have meant for bad, God uses for good. Identity. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. No height, no depth, no angel, no demon, no circumstance, nothing can separate you from God because of the love that is found in Christ Jesus. Your identity is found in Christ. Joseph lost his identity when he lost his jacket. The moment we say yes to Jesus, the moment we go into the waters of baptism, we are given a jacket that no one can take off. How cool is this? Two weeks ago, 86-year-old man got baptized with oxygen tank on. How awesome is that, right? How awesome is that? How awesome is that is that a college freshman sixth grade year, sat in the back, way back there, with her mom, unable to control her emotions, flaring in the back. I'm like, are we going to have to do a deliverance? This poor girl was struggling with, with the emotional stuff in her life, and she came to Jesus. And for six years, she literally gave Jesus everything. She went to counseling. She went for help. She went to, to pastors. And this past New Year's Eve, she was baptized in the waters of baptism. How awesome is that, right? We all have our stuff. We're all broken. But when we give our identity to Jesus, all things are possible. And lastly, and I'm challenging you with this. This is your year to redefine how you interpret and approach your obstacles. Embrace everything. Embrace everything. This past year was one of the most challenging years of my life. And Luke said to me on Christmas week, he says, 
What was the best thing that happened this year? I said, this was the hardest year of my life, but the best year. Because every day I met with Jesus and every day he carried me through. Nothing big came from it. Nothing flashy and shiny. I can't say that my bank account went up. It actually went down. But it was the best year because this was the year that I said, what you do is what's best. And every single day, I made sure that I met with with Jesus. Let this be the year that your obstacles are actually your opportunity for God to do his best in you. Because we will learn that's what he was doing in and through Joseph. I don't, let me give you grace. Your obstacles come in three things. One, yes, you deal with the trauma of your family origin. We all deal with it. Two, there is an evil one who wants to seek, kill, and destroy you, and obstacles are things that are thrown at you. Jesus wants to heal both. But there's a third. Some of the obstacles in our life are things that we have purposely chosen to do, even though they're opposed to God. And Jesus is saying today, do over. Do-over. Today's your day to get a do-over. The heavens are telling you today, today's a day of do-overs. He graces you. He loves you. He forgives you. Amen. I want to invite the band to come up. And let's take communion together. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. You see, he had one more major obstacle, the cross. He had one major obstacle, everything that led to the cross. He said, my obstacles are your way, your way. We trust Jesus. Because every trial and temptation that we have gone through, he has gone through too, and even more. Let's eat. Take the bread, the cup. And he said, this is my new covenant. A new covenant for all. For all. I love it. I love it. Because I am undeserving of this covenant. The covenant is that we in Jesus are given the Holy Spirit. Amen? Because we are given the Holy Spirit. We can overcome every obstacle. There was a young man in his 20s that called me last week. And he's just going through some hellish stuff in his home. And he was in a situation where he wanted to react. He wanted to stand up and defend himself. Anyone ever been there? Like, like you got to prove your case. And he said, Rob... He said, the Holy Spirit met me in my reaction. I felt the Holy Spirit holding me down in my chair to not react. 
but rather to wait and respond. See, it's not only that the Holy Spirit moves us forward, sometimes he sits us down to trust him in the midst of everything that's going on. That's the covenant he gave to us. The power to lead and the power to give us rest. Amen? Let's strengthen new covenant together. Here's what I want you to trust. I want you to trust this year that the same God of Jacob was the same God of David, was the same God of Mary, and is the same God of you today. Amen? He is the same God. And what he did for Joseph and David and Mary, he will do for us. Can we sing that? Can we celebrate that? Can we own it? Thanks so much for joining us today. If this podcast has been helpful for you to know Jesus and make him known, then check out our website for more sermons and other resources, theplantchurch.org.